Well, I get the great privilege of getting to preach this morning. Um, I understand that you're going through a series on love, and so I get to preach to you about adultery. Um, <laughs> it was the passage assigned to me. It wasn't, it wasn't my choice, but uh, John, John gave me a, a way out, but I'd rather preach this text to you. The, uh, a few, few, about a year ago, when we, just after we came to our church, um, I bought a new Bible, my old Bible was falling apart, need a new one, want to get one that would last. And if you've ever bought a new Bible and it's got kind of that, that gold wrap around the pages and you, you try to open up your Bible and the pages kind of clump together, they stick together. And so for several weeks, even months, as I'm going to Bible studies and uh, just different events at church, I'm, I'm going with my new Bible and I'm opening up my Bible to pages I've never opened to before and I have to kind of split the pages apart and I'm just thinking... Great, this church thinks that I've never even opened my Bible to the book of John before. What kind of pastor did they get? Well, the pages in your Bible might stick together as you turn to the book of Hosea. Um, I'll give you a few moments to turn there. If you don't know where that is, it's just after Daniel. comes after Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, It shows up about here in my Bible if you want to flip somewhere in that range. Hosea chapter 3. We're in town because we got to um, just have a small part in, in Silas Tuthill and, and Val's wedding yesterday. Uh, it was such a joy to see that, see those vows made. A, a wedding is um, just a joyful time. See these two uh, young people come together, make these vows, pledge their love to one another to enter into this relationship that is supposed to last for a lifetime uh, to see the smiles on their faces, to see them dancing after they've made their vows, um, just to have the, the joy of this gift that God has given them. The white dress, the man all dressed up, going to get his bride, dancing with his bride, this, uh, this deep love that it just fills the room and all of those witnesses surrounding them, so excited for all that's going to happen. And it promises this this long, enduring, awesome relationship that God has invented and God has put together. And hopefully you, you have at least seen that kind of relationship of a beautiful marriage and all of the, the wonderful gifts that come along with that. On the opposite side of the spectrum is the word adultery. You take all that beauty of marriage... And you just shove it in a blender and you destroy it with the act of adultery. And adultery just strips away all of that joy, all of that faithfulness, all of that commitment, all of that exclusivity of a relationship, all that intimacy, and it spreads and scatters all that which was meant to be confined to that relationship out into the streets. And this marriage just has become bereft of all of that purity it once had. Nothing shreds those vows faster than adultery. You see that once lovely relationship turned into something ugly and gut-wrenching. Many of us have at least seen maybe through friends or family members, the ravaging effects 
of that decision to commit adultery. It hurts the family. It hurts the relationships all around them. And we know in our hearts it's such a vile practice despite our world's attempts to try to glamorize it or normalize it. In our heart we know what a reprehensible act adultery is. The book of Hosea is a book about adultery. It uses the word whoredom, prostitution, harlotry, all over its pages. And it's as if this existence of adultery that corrupts human relationships has been given to us to have a picture in our minds and maybe even the stench of it in our nostrils that shows what a horrible thing it is to abandon the living and true God who deserves, desires all of our commitment and devotion and dedication. And so he gives us this picture of adultery to mirror how horrible it is when we abandon the God who loves us. And this book of Hosea comes with all seriousness to the people of Israel to understand what a horrible thing it is to abandon the God who has been faithful to his people. Israel was rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. God intervened in a miraculous way to deliver his people out of that land. He led them into the wilderness. He faithfully provided for them water and food and all that was necessary for life. He was leading them into the promised land. And as he developed this relationship to them, it was to be almost a relationship of husband and wife, that type of exclusivity and intimacy. The very first command that God gives to Israel of the Ten Commandments is Exodus 20, verse 3 where God tells them, you shall have no other gods before me. That's almost like a marriage vow. You shall have no other husbands besides me, Israel. None. They were to be exclusively devoted to their God. The relationship between Israel and God was to be an exclusive one. They were to be married to Yahweh. They were not to pursue any other suitors. They were not to offer themselves up to other gods. They were not to find protection in anyone else. They were to live under the shadow of his wings. And yet, if you've read the Old Testament, you know this thick portion of your book is almost dedicated to all of the harlotry of the people of Israel. Again and again, they abandon their God. Again and again, they get themselves into trouble. Again and again, they effectively say to God, we don't want you as our husband. We want other gods as our husband. We will go after them. For most people, if you hear that a spouse has committed adultery, you would say, dump them. Get rid of them. It's not worth it. I'd say that's probably about 95% of the response that you would encounter in our world. Maybe that's an underestimate. If someone commits adultery, be done. Just cut the ties, divorce is on the table immediately. But what's the alternative to divorce when adultery has entered into the relationship? What's the alternative? Well, it's continuing in that relationship. And obviously, that would be a long, hard, difficult, costly road 
to take. In one of the most spectacular moments in history, we get a concrete picture of the love of God for sinners. As he calls a husband to go and love an adulterous wife. And that's what we find in the book of Hosea. God paints for us this concrete picture that mirrors God's love for sinners. We hear in this book of Hosea about how God deals with a people that has committed spiritual adultery. And we should be shocked by the kind of love that God displays. This text will show us that unfaithful people need costly love to redeem them from their spiritual adultery. Let's read this text, Hosea chapter 3. It's a short chapter, just verse 1 through 5. We'll come back and break it down into three parts. Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, or belong to another man, so will I also be to you, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days." This text presents to us a shocking love. So first, we should be shocked by God's love as we see this exhortation to Hosea, go love an adulterous woman. At the top of the universe is the holy God. There's none like him. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and there's none who compares with him. He has exclusive right and reign over all that he's created and there's none like him. And as this holy God who really has no parallel in the universe, he does shocking things, things that just kind of shock our sensibilities. Usually when we think about things that shock us, we think of God's wrath. We don't like to see the shocking display of his wrath. We often hear of complaints about how powerful and destructive God's wrath is. You might hear complaints about how could it be just that God would wipe out the entire world with the exception of eight people by a flood. Sometimes you hear people shocked that God would send Israel into the promised land and effectively wipe out the Canaanites. We're shocked when we read the book of Revelation and see all of the fire and brimstone and judgment that comes in those last days. We're shocked by his wrath. God does shocking things. And part of the reason for that is to remind us that his ways are not our ways. He is different from us. He keeps us on our toes. We don't put him into a box. We don't domesticate him. 
And so we are, in a sense, scandalized by some of the things that he does. Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, was always courting controversy with the people around him because they're just so shocked by the things he said and did. And so we find God's ways shocking. And in just a few words in Hosea 3, we find God shocking us again, not this time with his wrath, but this time with his love. He shocks us with his love. Now, many in the world latch on to the love of God. They like to form the love of God in their own image of what love should be. And then they say, well, I love the love of God and I don't like the wrath of God, so I'll keep his love and get rid of his wrath. But once they find out what his love is, they'd want to get rid of his love too. And so we look at God's love and we let it shock us because it's not like our love. It's a foreign, alien, different kind of love. It almost sounds immoral. It's not, not speaking heresy, everything that God does is just and right, but it almost sounds to our sensibilities immoral. God's love for us is not based on our loveliness, and that's the great scandal. We want to be loved for how lovely we are. We want to be like that bride that looks lovely and attractive to the groom so he goes down the aisle to go and get her. That's not the way that we looked to God. And that's not his love for us fundamentally. God's love is quite different. His love is shown by the command that he gives to his prophet Hosea. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And this is why he commands him to do it. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. In chapter 1 of Hosea, verse 2 It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Prophets in the Old Testament generally don't come on the scene when Israel is doing a fantastic job of obeying and loving God. They come around when things are rough, when they are needed to call back the people of Israel to repentance and to the ways of the Lord. And so God sets up for Israel this prophet Hosea, whose job it is to have a relationship that mirrors the relationship between God and his people. Hosea prophesied about 750 B.C. during the start, a time of prosperity for Israel when the borders were being restored And Israel was reclaiming some of their land, and it looked pretty good materially, but spiritually they were bankrupt because they were going after all kinds of foreign gods. It was so awful that they were eventually exiled from the land. And it says this in 2 Kings Verse seven, chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, that their exile from the land occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So Hosea is sent to this kind of people, 
to warn them of the ramifications of their spiritual adultery. And his whole household is set up to warn the people. So he takes to himself a wife of whoredom, a woman who is going to end up prostituting herself. And his whole household will be framed by this notion because they're going to have three children together, one of whom is called Jezreel, which means the Lord scatters. The next one is called No Mercy. And the third one is called Not My People. Don't call your kids that. (laughs) Unless God tells you to. It does not sound like a happy home. What a rough household. The household just seems doomed from the start. But the real anguish of the household comes when Hosea's wife, Gomer, leaves the confines of marriage and prostitutes herself to other men. Hosea sends his children to go plead with their mother. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Chapter 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Was Hosea not doing that? Was he not providing? Certainly the implication is that he was a faithful husband. He did what was necessary for his household. He provided for his wife, but she was not content with his provision of grain, water, and oil, and comfort and protection. She decided to ruin that relationship and give herself to other men and receive payment for it. What a horrific act. In Israel effectively did the same thing to their God as they were not content with the manna, the water, the grapes, the juice, the wine, the bread, the fruit of the land. They said, no, we will not be content with what our God provides. We will go and give our worship to other gods and receive payment from them for the grain and the kind of life that we want. That's what they did. Chapter 1, verse 2 says the, the land commits great whoredom. They were selling their worship for the gain they will get from other gods. And Hosea gets to experience in his own home the pain and ramifications of an adulterous wife. In a sense, he gets to experience the heart of God. It's not easy being a prophet. He had a tough job. He did what was called of him. And as he did it, it gives to us this amazing picture, not only of the pain of prostitution and adultery, but of the love of God. Because after all that happened in his home, again, chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, Go Again, 
he's speaking to Hosea a second time and tells Hosea, go. He said to Hosea the first time, go take a wife of whoredom. This time he says, go again. Go again. Take your wife. Except for it's not take a wife this time. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. The text is, despite its seeming ambiguity, is actually clear. There's no other woman in Hosea's life. It is Gomer. It's a woman. It's the woman that has left him. It's Gomer. This has been, in a sense, a setup all along for Hosea to enter into this relationship that is going to burst with the adultery of his wife so that he will have the opportunity, the command on him to go again and reclaim his wife from that adultery that she has given herself to. And we feel the shock of this because if there's ever a time that a husband would be justified in saying, I'm done with you, it would be then. We feel that Hosea would have had complete justification to say, she's abandoned this marriage, she's done, she doesn't even want back. There's no hint here that Gomer is at the doorsteps begging for forgiveness with a repentant heart, just desiring Hosea to take her back in. She's with another man. That's why he has to go. I don't know if Hosea would have done this without the command of God. I don't know if this was on Hosea's heart, that his heart was bursting with love for his wife. He could have pulled a Jonah. He could have gone off to try to get to uh, the belly of a whale rather than go try to enter back into this relationship with his adulterous wife. The point is that this does not necessarily erupt from his own heart. But there's something profound in this because Hosea is told to go by God, by command of God, to go love this woman. The reason for it is, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. We could say, Hosea was compelled by the command of God and in the, prophet of a, uh, in the role of a prophet to go and do this thing under compulsion. We cannot say that of God. Who compels God? Who constrains him? Who is his counselor that tells him what he should do? Therefore, when God is deciding to go and love an adulterous people, he does that from the overflow of his own love for that people. He is not constrained by any outside force. He does it out of his own heart. Why? Because God loves sinners. That's why. God loved adulterous Israel. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. The heart of Israel was so corrupted that it is reflected in that last phrase. They turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. They have chosen raisins over God. 
God. The God who split the Red Sea, who's always faithful to his word, always does what he says he will do, is always there, is always good, kind, merciful, loving, just, never forsakes, never abandons, is always kind. And they love raisins. And God loves them. Because God loves sinners. Anytime you come to the Old Testament, it's easy to say, well, that's Israel. That's them. We read how bad they were. It's just ridiculous. I would never do that. <laughs> um, yeah, you did. I did. And you know it. The New Testament makes it so clear that God didn't start loving us after we've come to him. After there's some decision in our hearts that shows that you know, we're on our way to God. That's not the way the New Testament ever phrases it. God loved the world and he gave his only son. It's his initiative. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we loved raisins, Christ died for us. You might not like raisins, so pick your fruit of choice. But you loved it more than God. You exchanged the glory of God for the created things. You love your own self. You love this world more than God. You love your career. You love your family. You love your shoes, you love your clothes, you love your food, you love your home, you love the trees, you love the grass, you love the air more than God. It's what you did. You could sum it up as you loved raisins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John says in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation For our sins. We can't minimize how awful our sin is to God. It's so awful that it's like a spouse committing adultery against the loving, faithful spouse. And perhaps there's no other text that puts such a a fine emotional point on that reality. That God loved an adulterous people. And while you were still a sinner, he loved you. Hosea's story goes on. And for us, it reminds us that we are purchased by God's son because Hosea had to go and purchase Gomer, his wife. Verse 2, after being commanded to go again and love a woman who's loved by another man, verse 2, he responds, "So, so I bought her. For fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer and a lethic of barley. 
All that was said so far was that Hosea had to go and love this woman. It doesn't expand on how to love her, but we see how that love begins to take place. The details are scarce, and it's kind of ambiguous what happened with Gomer, but it seems most likely that she had left Hosea, gotten herself into some sort of enslaved prostitution kind of racket, and now is not uh, belonging to Hosea any longer. She's a slave on the market for sale. And so in order for Hosea to go and love his wife again, he has to round up the money to go and purchase a slave woman to get her back. And so he goes to the market, bringing with him silver and barley, and that probably adds up to about 30 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to the price of a female slave, and pays it in order to acquire his wife back. Her life was so bereft of morality that it had led her into a slavery. She was in a position where she was owned by another, and in order for Hosea to acquire her, he needed to pay a price to get her back as his own. And so Hosea's first act of love towards his adulterous wife is to go buy her back from her slavery. It shows us redemption has a cost. Love has a cost. We would be foolish to think that that husband who decides to go and love his adulterous wife again is going to have an easy path ahead. It's going to be hard. And it's hard to begin with in that it costs him greatly. Now you could think, you know, Gomer's response to this would be, barley and silver, is that all I'm worth to you? 30 pieces of silver for a human being isn't all that much in the end. But it begins to show that there's a definite price to be paid for what she has done and what she's gotten herself into. Hosea's deal to purchase her was decisive. It was brokered and it was completed, and it does not paint a flattering picture of the situation that Gomer had gotten herself into. And it reminds us that our own redemption has come at a great cost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We got ourselves into such a situation that we had to be bought out of slavery. We had to be bought with a price. It wasn't 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't some barley. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. The God of heaven who saw you, a sinner, enslaved to sin, knew that the ramifications for your sin was death. And the only thing that can redeem you is the blood of the Son of God, the sinless one, the Holy One of God, 
who shed his own blood on the cross to redeem sinners like us. That's what it cost to buy you back from the slave market of sin and the grips of death. It was the blood of Christ. He sent his son to get you back. So we're saved, we're rescued by the Son of God. And the text goes on, and it shows that God has a plan. And we're saved by this plan that God has. Verse 3, Hosea speaks to his wife. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. So as Hosea goes and acquires Gomer back, he kind of sets some ground rules for his household. Gomer comes back. It again, doesn't give us any hint if she's coming reluctantly or willingly. The whole point is that Hosea's gone to rescue her. doesn't say anything about her willingness or unwillingness at this point. just says that he goes to get her and love her. And as he brings her back into his home, he tells her, Look, you have to dwell here for many days. That means that she can't go out and do the same thing she did before. She's going to stay in the home and belong to Hosea and not play the whore. And Hosea reciprocates by saying that he is going to belong to her. There's some hints here that this relationship is going to be a little bit different at this point. It may not be consummated, They're going to live together, but there's going to be a period of lack of intimacy. And the reason why this comes out is because of verse 4. This explains why Hosea is saying what he says to his wife, Gomer. It's all for the purpose of mirroring the relationship between God and the children of Israel. It says in verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. This shows that God has a plan for Israel, the real nation of Israel. He has a plan for them. I mentioned earlier that they were ultimately exiled from the land. They were kicked out of Israel, and they were brought out to Assyria. And then later, Judah was brought over to Babylon. And so for quite a long time, they were brought out of the land. They had no king. They were really uh, excised of their spiritual adultery in the sense that they weren't going after other gods. They didn't have an ephod, which was a means of divination. They didn't have household gods anymore. They didn't have places to sacrifice. They didn't have um, uh, adulterous or idolatrous pillars erected any longer. And so they were seeing the fulfillment of this verse 4. God had a plan to kind of bring them out of the land, purify them for a time, but even as he brought them back into the land, things weren't restored fully to the nation of Israel. They didn't have a king. They didn't have the, uh, the opportunity to kind of live out the freedom as a nation any longer because they always had other nations that were over them. And if we fast forward several thousand years, even today, the nation of Israel, even though they're in, la- in the land, do not have the full capacity to practice all the worship that God had for them. They have no temple, no priesthood. They don't have their king. At least they don't believe him. Verse 4 is a major prophecy of Scripture. 
It tells us God's plan for the nation of Israel, for the indefinite future, that for many days they're going to dwell without these things, without king or prince. The late James Montgomery Boyce, who was a Presbyterian pastor, non-dispensational in case that matters to you, wrote this about this passage. We admit, as we read this story, that our thoughts slip naturally from the story of Hosea and Gomer to Israel to God's dealings with ourselves, and that it is possible in such a flow of thought for the application to Israel to be lost. But we should not do this, particularly since this is the way Hosea himself applies the story in this chapter. In view of verses 4 and 5, I do not see how so many scholars can deny that there shall be a regathering of Israel and a national repentance of Israel in those last days that are yet to come. Some scholars, particularly reform scholars, deny any future national blessing of Israel on the grounds that the promises made to her are fulfilled in the church and the restoration of Israel would be a retrogression in God's saving work in history. But why is this a retrogression? And who are we to say what God must do? Who are we to interpret these passages in any way other than their most obvious meaning? Sorry, as I read that, I realized that's a mouthful. But let me just summarize it as this. These verses are applied directly to national Israel. And it is expected that there's going to be a period of time where God's love for Israel is not necessarily gone, but his relationship with them is in a sense on hiatus in the sense of full restoration. But there will come a time where Israel will experience the full restoration of relationship to God, and they will no longer go after other gods, but they will have David their king, in other words, the Messiah, who is Christ, and they will worship the Lord their God and seek him and fear him, and all of this will come to pass in the latter days, which from our time period are still the days to come. So this passage still has significance for the nation of Israel, and we still wait for it to be fulfilled. But we want to ask the question, what does it matter to us? Well, as we wrap up, turn over to Romans chapter 11. As Paul expands on this idea and helps us to see the plan of God, which directly affects everyone in this room. Romans chapter 11, actually beginning in just chapter 10, verse 21. Of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people, speaking of Israel, by no means? And then verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the gentiles so as to make israel jealous and then verse 25 lest you be wise in your own sight i do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers a partial hardening has come upon israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come in and in this way all israel will be saved 
In verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The point is this. During this time while Israel is waiting, God isn't using this time to short-circuit his love. He's actually using it to disseminate his love to a people who once were not his people, namely all of us. To fulfill what it says in Romans 5, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, so that that can include both Jew and Gentiles. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so as we wait for the fullness of Israel to come in, God is broadcasting his love for sinners, his love for adulterous people to the entire world, so that no nation would be exempt from this overflowing, awesome love that God has for sinners like us. And so this love of God spreads from nation to nation, end to end of the world. And one day, Israel, the nation that was called to God in that special relationship, will also call on the name of the Lord and experience the love that God has for sinners. God loves you, not because you're lovely, but because you're a sinner. Let's pray. Father, this is really good news for us because your word makes it so plain that every day of our lives we've broken your law. And if we were to wait for your love to come to us when we were lovely, we would still be waiting. So we thank you, Father, that you interrupted our rebellion and sent your own Son to rescue us and redeem us and purchase us with his own blood. Lord, what wonderful news. We give you the praise. Lord, I pray that we would relish this love, delight in it, and worship you as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.